Well, man, it's good to see you all today. If you're a guest, if it's your first time, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. You're welcome to anything we have going on. Today, we're bringing to a conclusion a sermon series that seemed like it started at the beginning of the year, because it did. 17 weeks, four months. We're coming to the conclusion of a series entitled Breakthrough. It's a journey through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we actually finished the Gospel of Mark with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, today, what I wanted to do is come back to a passage that early, early on in the series, I just kind of skipped over this because I knew I was going to come back to it. And because it's just one, to me, it, it is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's so critical. In fact, about uh, last fall, sometime, I preached from Matthew's account of this passage. And, and in that time, rightly so, I preached it, you know, for the purpose of helping people who aren't followers of Christ become followers of Christ because it really speaks to them. But today, what I really want to do is I still want to speak. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I still want this passage to speak to you. But I really want to talk to us who are followers to talk basically kind of to the people who consider themselves a part of this church or another church. And I kind of want to bring this entire series entitled Breakthrough uh, to a conclusion in Mark chapter 2 with the 17th and final message entitled Breaking Away for Life. Because people ultimately need to break away from all of their sin and all their rebellion against God for the rest of their life. So what I'm going to do today is conclude this series. And here's what I want you to see from the message today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have a message that can break people away from their sin and rejection of God. They can break away for life. For life, they can break away. So I'm again talking with you about what only Jesus can do. Because there's some things that only Jesus can do. Uh, probably since the time I've entered into ministry 40 years ago, 42 years ago. When was it? 1982, the math, 42 years ago almost. What I've heard continually is that Christianity is dying and that America is becoming less and less Christian, all this stuff, and I get it. And, and, there's, and there's truth to so many things in, in that statement, you know, in terms of percentages. Yes, your people are Christian. They were. And, and I get there are churches dying. There are entire denominations dying. And I know people mourn the fact and all that. I actually don't. I kind of figure if you don't do what God's called you to do, you probably deserve to die as a church denomination. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, you don't have a problem. So I don't worry about it. That's how I look at things. I, just, I take things kind of as the way they are. But, uh, and I see all that. But I want to share with you. I don't really think that's totally true. In fact, in two weeks, three weeks, uh, our staff's going to a conference at a church that started 25 years ago. It started 25 years ago in the mid-1990s. It's now the largest church in North America. It's not stopping. It just keeps reaching people, and they know how to do it, and they reach them, and they reach them, and they reach them. They, and the amazing thing is they get criticized for reaching lost people by all the churches and denominations that are dying, probably. In our own world, uh, as a Baptist, if you're not a Baptist, you're fairly new to us. Baptists are autonomous churches. We govern ourselves. No one tells us what to do. And, uh, but we associate with other groups and organizations that are Baptist and national and, you know, and, and, and state level. And uh, we partner. We help fly. Right now, we have six brand new, what we call church plants that have started in the last few years that we partner with. We help to varying degrees, five English, one Spanish. Two of them are, are local. Four of them are across the nation. A lot of them in, in, over in Arizona. And... Um, and one of them, the one we started working with about five years ago, maybe six years ago after I first came here a little bit, um, last Sunday on Easter, 
Now, they, they've started worshiping together for five years, and they've been in three different locations, three different schools. They're constantly kind of moving. Keith told me on the phone that they have, in, in the five years that they've kind of started, you know, and they, before that, they did a few other things in Bible studies, but they have seen over 300 people come to faith. And this past Sunday, they had over 350 people worshiping with them. This church has been around for five years. Now, understand, I should probably clarify. The average church in America has 75 people attending in worship per Sunday. It means half the churches in America basically have less than that. I mean, just understand this. The other, one of the other churches there in um, Surprise, Arizona, Phoenix, I was talking to Alex this week. They, they probably have about 125 people come on a regular basis. They actually started during the pandemic, January of 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic, they started. That's a dumb time to start a church. He and I talked about it. I said, there's no dumb time to start a church. Right? There's just dumb people starting churches. Don't be the dumb person. You're fine. Sunday on Easter, 256 people in worship. Three people came to know Christ. Those other three church plans that we deal with, that, that the, the English, because the Spanish-speaking one hasn't really started yet, none of them had less than 80 people, and all of them were basically brand new. Those five church plants had 900 people worshiping. Don't you understand? In, in a day and age where we're told Christianity's dying, dying, churches that are just a few years old, 900 people worshiping the Lord. First Baptist, last Sunday. As far as we can tell, as far as all that we've talked to with people who would know, we've been here a long time, we had more people in worship last Sunday than this church has ever had before. Almost 1,400 people. And, there are, and a lot of them are young. In this case, a lot of you are young. Some of you think you're young. Look around. If you don't look like the young people, because you ain't young. <laughs> I know, because I'm looking at you. Some of you some of you, I mean, some of you are really young. That's good. I mean, well, why am I telling this? Because Christianity isn't dying. Christianity never dies. It reaches people. And I'm going to tell you this because the problem for churches today is they have forgotten the fundamental message. And if you forget the message, if you forget and neglect the message, yeah, your church will die. Your denomination will die. So be it. But if you remember what it's all about, you'll be fine. And we come to one of those passages today that just captures what the church is to be about and captures the message that we have. It's a story about a guy who was paralyzed and then he wasn't because of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, Mark gives us Jesus' fundamental message, repent and believe, and then follow him. And then, you know, he did miracles. And then we come to chapter 2. The story of a guy who was paralyzed. I want to pick up in verse 12, and I'll come back to get the rest of it. Verse 12, get this. And he got up, the paralyzed guy, and immediately picked up the pallet and went out to the side of everyone. Understand, so that they were all amazed. All of them were amazed. And we're glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. In this house, there were all types of people. People who never heard of Jesus, people who were skeptical of Jesus, people who wanted to know more about Jesus, people who had been healed by Jesus. And at the end of the event, it says, every single person who was in the presence of Jesus, including the skeptics, were amazed at what Jesus had done when he changed the life of one guy. And they glorified God. Because of it. 
It has been said the fundamental purpose of our existence as humans is in the end to bring glory to God. That's what they did because of Jesus. And that's what people can do because of the message of Jesus Christ. But let's pick up at the beginning of the story. Chapter 2, verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Jesus came back to Capernaum. This was now his base of operations. In the area of Galilee, he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. But he had come back to Capernaum. We're going to see him in a house that's a lot of people in it. Probably a fairly large house for that day and age. It's going to be packed with people. And many were gathered together. So there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So, I mean, you know. Homes back then were pretty small, but this was probably a fairly good-sized home for that day. So it was probably someone who had a little bit of money. Maybe it was from Peter's family because their family had a fishing business. And, and Jesus kind of hung in that area with his family. And uh, it would have been a place, it, you know, they would have had a couple large courtyards area, basically. And they're packed in the place. And I don't know about you. I don't like a lot of people in my home. That's just me. Fundamentally, I don't like anybody in my home. But certainly like a lot of people. And the story of the day is going to give you a reason. Understand, I don't want a lot of people in my home. Because things happen when all those people get in your home. And so they were all there, packed in. Now this home, probably like a lot of our homes, we can imagine this is easy. Some of y'all have it, has a flat roof. And, and a lot back then, they would use the roofs oftentimes as a place to gather, like a porch. You could kind of get up there through a stairwell ladder. The roof would have basically been flat. It would have been, it's just all, all types of people describing how the roof and all these different views of it. Most likely, it was a roof that was made out of kind of a mud mixture, kind of a plaster kind of thing, and it probably had some tiles. That's why we think they were probably wealthy, some decorative tiles. We have to, so you got this picture. All right, verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, there was this guy who was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. Uh, sometimes I say his back was broken. I'll do that for a dramatic effect. We don't know why he's paralyzed. But he had four buddies, and, and, and they were there. And it says they were unable to get in the house because of the crowd. Now, I want you to understand, this story is very humorous when you really think about it. Now, here are these four guys. I know these guys. I went to school with these guys. I played ball with these guys. I firmly believe that the story we're about to see come from four guys and their buddy, who were somewhere, whatever, however Galilee looks, wherever they were from, it was the southern part of Galilee. <laughs> they were like, I'm from Texas. They were from the Texas part of Galilee or from the southern part of Galilee. Because get what happens. Because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And then when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, get, get this. this they're going to dig a hole in a rich guy's roof, Okay. That, that's something, I know these guys. This is, I can picture these friends of mine from the old days. They would do this. But understand, they're desperate to get their friend in front of Jesus. And they can't get through the door. So they climb up on the roof. And this takes some degree of engineering. The southerners are actually pretty smart. Because they got to figure out exactly where Jesus is. They got one shot at this. And so they begin, they move the tiles, and they begin to dig a hole in the mud roof. And you know, this. can you imagine being the owner of this beautiful home? You got Jesus there. And all of a sudden you're looking up and there's dirt falling from the ceiling. And it starts to trickle down and more and more. And all of a sudden this hand punches through. And there's this little hole. And this eye looks down. And the guy looks and says, Donnie Ray, we got the right place. He's standing right there. (laughs) And then they make this hole big. They got to make it big enough to get an entire body through. They can't just fold this guy up and shove him in a hole. 
They got to lower him in it. And dirt swaying and everything. I can expect Jesus sitting there like, oh yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, this guy's, whoa. They bring him down and they lower him down. And one or two of them probably do what young southerners would do. They just jump on down with him. I mean, guarantee when I was young, I could have done that. I could still do it. I'm just too smart to try it. They got him down there. Verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you've got to understand something at this point. 2,000 years ago, they believed that if a guy was paralyzed, it didn't matter if it was from birth or through an accident, it was because of sin against God. Their understanding of God and the Jewish view of God was he was so holy that if something bad happened to you, it was because you sinned against God and you were being punished. Jesus didn't affirm that. He didn't necessarily believe that. In fact, in John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind, born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, why was he born blind? Whose sin is it that he's being punished for, his or his family's? Jesus said, none. But ultimately, so God will be glorified. So Jesus didn't buy into that God zapped this guy because of sin. But he dealt with them where they were. Notice, he didn't correct the theology of the day. He took these people right where they were when he dealt with them. He said, whatever sins you think caused your paralysis, it's been forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Now, the scribes, we've dealt with them a bunch in this series. They're religious leaders. There's several different groups of them. I mean, they're the keepers of the religious system. They were reasoning. The word is dialogue. They were dialoguing in their hearts, the place where they decide. And then they said this in their hearts. And they all were thinking the same thing. Why does this man speak that way? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And before you criticize the scribes, understand technically they were right. Who can forgive sins? I mean, the reason the guy was a paralytic, and everybody believed this, was because he sinned against God. Who can forgive a sin against God? Well, God can forgive a sin against God. No one else can do that. So in their way of thinking, Jesus was committing blasphemy. He was doing what only God can do. Who is this? Man, that's probably a pretty good question to ask about Jesus. Who is this guy? What is he doing? Verse 8, immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? If something is easier, then it stands to reason that something is also harder. Now, this is the deal. Here is this guy, lowered in front of all these people. He's paralyzed. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now, what he really came for was to be able to walk. I mean, his buddies had a lot of faith. This guy had a lot of faith that Jesus would help him to walk. That's why they came. And he's forgiven sins. And everybody's talking about him. He can't forgive sins. Now, it's easy to say, your sins are forgiven in the sense that you don't have to back it up, right? I mean, how are you going to know his sins are forgiven? Is God just going to reveal it somehow? No. It's more difficult to say, pick up your pallet and walk, because then you've got to walk. <laughs> That's hard. 
But think about it from a human perspective, which is harder to do. Is it harder to forgive sins on behalf of God? Or is it harder to have someone who's paralyzed walk? Well, back then, both were impossible. In fact, both are impossible today. You and I just can't have somebody paralyzed. We can't touch them and have them walk. Now, I do realize that today in our world, that sometimes people are paralyzed and their surgeries are performed and there's therapy that goes on and they're able to walk again. So we do know that it is possible for someone to walk again and humans to be involved in that, which then really emphasizes the point what is completely impossible is to forgive someone's sins. So Jesus asked a very legitimate question. What's the easier thing to do? To say. The easier thing to say is you're forgiven. But the harder thing to do is to forgive. Verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, we've seen this throughout the series. The Son of Man is his way of referencing himself as Messiah. He's saying, I want you to know that I am the Messiah, which is a pretty bold statement. That's what he's saying in essence. And I have authority. And we've discussed the authority, really, almost this entire series has been about the authority. A couple of weeks ago, he said they put Jesus to death. It was about authority. Authority is who has the right, who has the, the undeniable right. Basically, I put it to you like this. Who has the authority to speak for God? Does Jesus have the authority to speak for God, or do the religious leaders have the authority to speak for God? That's always the question at stake. And they killed him because they rejected him having authority over them. But so you'll know that I have the authority, the authority that only God has. I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, go home. Jesus wants them to know that he has the authority no one else has to speak for God. And he can do it by forgiving this guy. But he has to back it up by healing this guy. So here's the thing. If this guy gets up, goes home, and Jesus really does heals his paralysis, then Jesus really does have the power to forgive sin. And Jesus really is God. And in verse 12 again, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. He got up and immediately he left. Now, we kind of had this picture, you know, this, we preach this kind of stoically and teach it. They dug a hole, they dropped him, it happened. He said, thank you very much, Jesus, picked up his pallet up, appreciate it, guys, smart, we've got to go. No, oh, man, come on, you know there was celebration. He's, these, these four good old boys are down there with him. And they brought their buddy to be healed. And no one was really sure, but they thought it might be possible. And now he gets up. And you know they're just going crazy. There's dirt on everybody. And they're, and they're taking their friend and they're hugging him and patting him on the back. And he's saying, careful with the back. It was broken seconds ago. Don't be messing with my back. <laughs> so you've had back trouble. You know the last thing you want is a bear hug from some big old southern boy. Just squeezing your back. Don't break it again. He's only going to do this once. And everybody just was amazed. Even the scribes were amazed. People praise God. Because Jesus did what only Jesus could do. Healed a man whose back was broken. 
in the process forgave his sin. And the message we have that's encapsulated in this story is very simple. There was a man who had the authority to do the inconceivable, forgive sins, and cause the impossible to be possible, to bring us to God. That is what the Gospel of Mark is all about. That is what only Jesus can do. And it brings me then to the conclusion of this entire series. Some of you are saying, thank goodness. And I want to conclude this way. What only Jesus can do through us. Through us. A few weeks back, sometime in March, I was on a Tuesday morning. I was over in Denny's Cross Street. And I was having breakfast with a guy. This guy is uniquely qualified to understand all the Baptist churches, basically, that cooperate in the state of New Mexico. He, he gets all of New Mexico, the churches. He deals with all that. And we were talking. Now, there's, there's 330 uh, Southern Baptist churches in New Mexico. Not a very big state. We only have about 2 million people. And by comparison, over in Phoenix, I was talking to a guy in Phoenix the other day when he was there. And I said, how many Baptist churches are in Phoenix? He said, 285. But they have like you know, five or six million people living there. So you know, really, it's not all that bad, the number of churches we have for the population. Most of them are very small. They, most of them fall under that 75 mark. Okay? So they're pretty small. A lot of them are rural. You get the picture. You know New Mexico. You live here and you know it. He and I were talking. And this is now, you know, COVID's basically over, and it's been two years, and he looks at me, and he says, there, to my knowledge, and he's going to know, there are only two churches, Baptist churches in New Mexico, maybe a third, but for sure there's only two for sure that I know of. Maybe a third, but only two. That came out of COVID in as good a shape or better than when they went in. We are one. And up north, there's another. And that's it. I read an article this past week, dated March 29th. It's in the Christian Post. It said after COVID, most of the churches in America got smaller. Most churches got smaller. Now, I don't know how accurate most, probably a lot, maybe over half. In fact, the article said almost all. And I think that's probably a bit of an overstatement. And then it began to explain why. And the reasons were interesting but there was one phrase in there that really caught my attention. It was the phrase, churches stopped. Now, it went on after that, but I just, I stopped when I saw churches stopped. And I said, that right there is the issue. Churches have stopped. This has been going on for years. In fact, this has been going on since I've entered ministry 42 years ago. I mean, churches have stopped as their fundamental call in life to honor and glorify God. And they found some other reason to exist. In fact, one of the things that I've noticed just during the COVID as an example is how many churches made it their fundamental philosophy and goal. They said, we just want to keep our people safe. They made every decision they made was to keep people safe. And I get, I get we want you to be safe. We have things in place for safe. If you got kids, your kids are as safe there as I can imagine. But the fundamental goal of a church isn't to keep you safe. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of that. It's kind of risky. The fundamental goal is to get you to glorify God. 
which in our day and age is not a simple thing to do. Churches have stopped understanding that primarily the needs of people are spiritual. They need Jesus. And instead, we made, <laughs> made it that our, our mission is to help people's economic needs or the social needs of people. Now, economic and social needs matter, but listen, one day you're going to face Jesus. And he don't care how wealthy you were. And he ain't going to care how things went for you in the culture. He's going to want to know, did you trust me? In the end, that's all that matters is the spiritual needs of people. And churches have stopped proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God. And instead, they have just made Christianity another religion. One of many ways. So yeah, churches die. And denominations along with them. Because they have forgotten the mission and the purpose of followers of Christ. Those who don't forget, they do fine. After the resurrection, Jesus didn't say much. In fact, Jesus never said much about what we are actually to do. If you just go through the Gospel of Mark, he didn't really tell us a whole lot about what we're to do when he's gone. He teaches a lot, instructs, does miracles, all that stuff. But he said something very simple in Matthew's Gospel, the very end of it. And something that's familiar to most Christians. He said, you go make disciples. Here's your task. Here's your job, guys. Just listen to me and tell those guys, his followers, listen, it's not complicated. Make disciples. Baptize them, teach them, make disciples. And then right before he ascended in heaven, just seconds, he said, when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll have the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what you will do. Not here's what I want you to do. Here's not what you get a chance to do. Here's what you will do. You will witness to me. And he told them where they will go. And they did it. And the church exploded and grew. In the first 280 years of the church's existence, it faced persecution all the time. In fact, for a large part of that, Rome kept trying to destroy the church. But the church eventually outgrew Rome and took it over. And the reason for that was simple. They understood people needed Jesus. Here's the thing we need to see. People still need Jesus. They always will. And we know him. We know the story of Jesus. We know Jesus. And the fundamental reason followers of Christ gather together in what we call churches is to honor and glorify God and get people to Jesus. Because when you look at the gospel of Mark, when all was said and done, as exemplified in this one little story, here's what you see. God was glorified and people followed Jesus. In fact, read Matthew and Luke and John and Acts and all the things that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, John wrote, Jude wrote, the guy who wrote Hebrews wrote. And God is glorified. And people follow Jesus. That is our task as a church. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your fundamental responsibility. To glorify God 
and get people to Jesus. Why? Because it works. Because it'll happen. See, here's what we know. There was a man who was paralyzed. And then he wasn't. And Jesus changed his life. And he still changes the lives of people today. You believe that, don't you? Don't you believe that Jesus still changes the lives of people? That he takes the impossible and makes it possible. In fact, I began this entire series way back in January. I began it with this statement. In all of human history, Jesus broke into the world at a special moment in time. And he made possible something special, a breakthrough in the struggle with sin. And here's a story about some good old boys who brought their buddy to Jesus. And he forever changed their life. People were amazed. God was praised. That's what happened. People encountered Jesus. And you and I have that message, a message that will give people a breakthrough for life. So who do you know that needs that message? Who do you know that needs a breakthrough? And when are you going to help them come to Jesus? Some of you may need to come to Jesus today. Some of you may need to just pray with someone for yourself or someone else. Some of you may want to maybe come and join our church. Here's the thing. In just a moment, we're going to stand here. Some of us ladies, there'll be another lady here if you want to talk to a woman. That's fine. But if you need something in your life that only Jesus can do, if you need a breakthrough, we'll pray with you. We'll talk to you. But be sure. You don't walk out of this place today without having a breakthrough for the rest of your life. God, what a beautiful picture we have in the Gospel of Mark of the true and eternal story of Jesus. And here in this one little part, we see the beauty of what Christ can do. To do the impossible, to change your life and bring people to glorify you. Some of us need the forgiveness of that sin and to be changed today. And some of us need to take that message to the people we know so they can experience a breakthrough. Father, so we can experience a breakthrough for life. In the name of our Lord, amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.